the Tech Canada Leadership Standard, hosted by Tech Speaker of the Year and branding expert, Gare Maxwell. Real life stories from leaders spanning the business spectrum. Now more than ever, leaders are shifting through significant decisions under accelerated timeframes with less information and bigger consequences for their companies, for their people, and for the communities that they live in. You're about to learn of the triumphs, failures, struggles, and disruptions through the first-hand account of an industry leader. Join us now for the Leadership Standard. For more than two decades, he's helped marketers tell their story more effectively. He's worked with more than 500 organizations, including 15 of the Fortune 100. The list of names for his marketing advice and counsel for global brands is endless. Facebook, Capital One, Dell, Ernst & Young, Microsoft, Thomson Reuters, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, UPS. His first book, Managing Content Marketing, considered to be an owner's manual of the content marketing process, but it's his latest book that he co-authored with Joe Paluzzi, Killing Marketing, that is rewriting the rules of what marketing should be in the 21st century. He's the self-described chief troublemaker at the Content Marketing Institute, a sought-after keynote speaker, author, and recovering Dallas Cowboys fan. Let's say hello to Robert Rose. Robert, thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank Standard. you so much for having me. I, you know, you had to throw that last one in there, didn't you? You just, you know, you had to, that one, that, that one stuck. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot to be said for loyalty. And I know in our earlier conversation, <laughs> you wear those, you know, you wear those cowboy colors proudly. I mean, there you are in Hidden Hills, uh, just outside Los Angeles, California, California. You're cavorting with the Kardashians, who I understand are your neighbors, but you still are true blue Dallas Cowboys. I, I am indeed. Well, I come by it naturally because I was, you know, I, I grew up in Dallas. And so... I like to say I grew up in the shadow of Texas stadium. So as a kid, we would go and sneak into games and, you know, this is the days of Roger Staubach and, and, and of course, golden Richards and two tall Jones and that whole scenario, which gives you some sense of my age, but um, yeah, I, so I come by it naturally and have been a fan since I was, uh, since I was, well, since I was old enough to actually understand how to hold a football. Well, it's no fault of yours because those were halcyon days with yeah. the doomsday defense. And, uh, <sighs> and, 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 and maybe this is doomsday for traditional marketing, Robert. And, you know, um, I, I, I want to just share with everyone watching and listening here on the leadership standard. There are very few books that come along that are rewriting the rules and, in 2017, you and Joe Polizzi, and I, I'll just read the, the subtitle so everyone gets it in terms of what is killing marketing, how innovative businesses are turning marketing cost into profit. W what for me was a stunning revelation was that you and Joe, especially in the first few chapters, basically turned marketing upside down. I'd love for us to start there in terms of what was your thought process and what does it all mean for people just becoming familiar with this concept? Certainly. Well, and, and I should start by saying that the, 
the title is, uh, I mean, as you well know, um, meant to sell books. So it is tongue in cheek, firmly implanted. Um, we are nothing if not the biggest fans of the practice of marketing. I've been doing this 30 years. And so I am a marketing fanboy. I have grown up in marketing and advertising and, and, and absolutely love it as a practice. It has become the passion of my life in terms of my career. What we really stumbled on was something that isn't new, but certainly is trending in a direction that is changing the face of marketing as the practice that we all knew and grew up with, with the four P's and, and, and integrated marketing and communications and all of the things that we were sort of traditionally taught in university as marketing as a general cost center of the business, right? So it was how we packaged, promoted, placed, and, and, and did everything we did with our offerings to the marketplace. Well, interestingly, as media has become more democratized, what we noticed was there were brands that were actually taking advantage of the ability and the democratization of content distribution, content creation, content uh, promotion, which is something that the internet really gave to us all and starting to use it to actually generate content of value to subscribers, to audiences, and using that and monetizing those audiences in a way that it was either an effort that was paying for itself and an effort that was actually drawing in revenue at a profitability or something in between. And, you know, there were classic examples that we started to see out there, which I'm sure we can talk about but businesses that were sort of turning the old idea of marketing as a cost center on its head and actually doing things that reached audiences, moved those audiences to change behaviors in ways that we really wanted and did so and added, you know, money to their bottom line. And so we decided to write about it and document it. Now, one of the early stories in the book, and, and, and this is why I, I don't mind sharing what hooked me was that early story you and Joe told about Red Bull, a company that went from just selling an energy drink and putting marketing spend behind it to becoming its own media company that happens to sell an energy drink. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and there have been many, you know, copycats along the way, right? And Red Bull was really innovative in this space, um, you know, in the, you know, early 2000s and, and really sort of reinvented what being a marketing department really meant for a, a beverage company in those days. And so really what they did was they just took something that was completely sensible, which was they were sponsoring like many, you know, consumer brands do sponsoring formula one races and sponsoring all kinds of uh, different extreme sports. And while they were at one of these Formula One races, they decided that they could sort of get more mileage out of what they were creating by creating a magazine that sort of highlighted all the race results. And it was something they could give away of value to the race uh, viewers as they were there at the race. And it was something that they would keep, they would hold on to. And so this was a piece of marketing material that would ultimately feature their brand and feature you know, what they did for a living. But it was also delivering value to the, you know, the audience there. And it was something that they wouldn't just throw away like you would a promotional brochure or a catalog or something like that. And what they started to discover was they could sort of center all of their brand as a, and they wanted to be a lifestyle brand like so many consumers uh, brands do. 
they can sort of center everything they do on that. And so very quickly getting into magazine publishing and publishing documentary films and of course, creating their own events and creating digital content and documentaries and all kinds of content under the auspices of a Red Bull media house. And then they discovered there are other companies that want to reach our audience as well. We can actually have this content be sponsored. We can sell advertising. We can actually syndicate it out for money. We can sell it to TV networks. And now all of a sudden you have guys jumping out of spaceships. You've got all kinds of stunts that are sponsored by and paid for by other companies to reach that audience. But it's also serving as the main marketing output of what Red Bull is trying to do. You know, and, and I think that's worth diving into. At the Monaco Grand Prix in 2005, as you said, they took a printing press to the track. They had a magazine all ready to go. And when the race finished, they had the latest race results. And you're right, they gave something of value. What I'm interested in, Robert, is how Red Bull took that initial step without really knowing what they were stumbling into. What are people doing now that you're seeing, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube channel that, that, that helps leaders understand sometimes, like Red Bull, you've got to take those very first uncertain steps just to see what works. Yeah. You know, it, it comes down to an idea that is really not terribly uh, new, um, which is how can we create something of value to our consumer that will demonstrate that we have value? In other words, traditional marketing and advertising is expounding upon our features and benefits, right? Saying, we are great at this. I promise you, we are the best in the world at Y. We have no competition when it comes to Z. We are the best. And that's traditional marketing and advertising, claiming differentiation, claiming superiority in the marketplace, and ultimately putting content out there that changes the mind or persuades that audience that that's what you should be done. And what Red Bull discovered and what other companies are discovering and have discovered actually for the last hundred years in varying degree is that we can also do something <clears throat> valuable to the audience that's completely separate and distinct from our brand or our product or our features or our benefits. We can deliver something of value and whether it's educational, whether it's inspirational, whether it's entertaining, whether it's a how-to teaching you something, whatever it may be that's actually delivering that value, I can do that. And that's going to develop a trusted relationship between you, the consumer, and me, the brand or the product you know, being offered. And ultimately, if I can deliver that value to you first, I can demonstrate that I'm valuable. Well, when you come into the market for whatever it is I offer, of course, I'm going to be the first consideration for you. I'm going to be the first one that you consider. Or if you're considering me against someone else, if I'm the one who's demonstrated the value by giving you something, well, then you're going to immediately consider me above all the other competition. And that idea is made difficult in a world where content production and distribution is hard and expensive. Right? You think of the classic airline magazine, or you think of the classic, you know, home magazine, printed magazine. And those, you know, you and I are old enough to remember doing that by hand with little razor knives and glue and all of that and putting layouts together of print magazines. But today, 
it's largely democratized. I can put out something just as professional as a high-end magazine. I can build a website. I can build a podcast. I can build any manner of content. And the distribution is really frictionless today with the internet and the web. So all of those costs came tumbling down. And so our ability to deliver that content became a much easier hill to climb. And so it's something that brands of all sizes can do in order to differentiate themselves in a very crowded, very noisy marketplace. So let's put this whole theory, this concept, Robert, uh, and your list of credentials of organizations you've worked with, impeccable. But let's go away from Facebook and Microsoft and UPS and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sure. into, yeah. let's say, the $20 million company that's got like, I don't know, 18 dental locations or someone who's doing hydraulic fluids and selling parts and components. Why is this idea of becoming your own media company relevant to the leaders in that company? Because today, I think one of the things that we have to face is the level of trust that we need to develop with consumers. So it doesn't matter how big or small our business is, getting any amount of attention from our consumers to spend any amount of time with us is precious. And so whether that's on television, whether that's on radio, whether that's in a mall, whether it's something that we direct mail and using a, a, you know, the, the postal mail to deliver, whether it's email, doesn't matter. All of those channels are so fragmented, trying to reach our target market, you know, our TAM, going back to our classic marketing and advertising term, total addressable market, is hard, it's difficult, and it's expensive. And so that attention is precious. And so if I'm a mid-sized company, if I'm a small company, um, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, uh, you know, we worked with a mid-sized organization and I'll pick the most boring industry I can possibly think of. They deal in soldering, you know, like literally melting little lead in, into, into, into shapes and making circuit boards. And this soldering company, they said, we have a market out there that is trying to run experiments. Our engineers, the people who are putting together soldering boards, circuit boards, all of the different things they're doing for their job. They have experiments they want to run. They have questions. And so we can get our engineers and teach and create a resource center or create an educational center of excellence where all those answers can be found without them having to do a lot of searching. We can create a service, almost like a product, if you will, a service of education and help. And by doing that, we become the source, the media source. Why? Because it doesn't exist right now. There aren't any you know, beautiful, wonderful thought leadership magazines in the world of soldering. And so by doing that, they created a blog and they created, uh, they used their engineers to sort of provide all this wonderful educational material and teaching these engineers how to do various experiments, as they said, experiments that our consumers don't have the time to do. And by providing that, they're providing a service, a value in content. And today, this is a small company, a small mid-sized company. I, they're a little bigger than 20 million, but not much bigger than that. And what they've done is they've, they've been able to create such a wonderful center with all of this content that they now translate, by the way, into six different languages. If you said to me, 
who's the biggest media company in soldering? I would tell you it's this little company. This little company is now the biggest media company in soldering because they produce blogs, you know, multiple blogs per day and, you know, and every, every week and in six different languages. And they're producing this thing and getting tremendous. And it's the number one lead generation method for them because they're demonstrating that trust. So it's really about, you know, the going back to our classic marketing lessons of reach and frequency. And we say, how do we reach these audiences that we need to reach our target market as infrequently as we can, by the way, because frequency represents cost, how many ads I have to run or how many cold calls I have to make. And how do I create something that the minute some of my, uh, my customers see this, the first thing they want to do is engage with me more. Either subscribe, buy, do something with me, start to develop a relationship. And so to me, it makes even more sense for smaller businesses to do this because it's a way to actually increase your reach by using the thing that you're passionate about doing, which of course is the subject matter of your business. So it doesn't matter, Robert, if you're selling shoes, soldering, or sewing machines. There's, <laughs> there's riches in the niches. And to that extent, what I just heard is something I've been exploring for a while. This is no longer just a marketing issue this is a leadership issue. This goes right to the very top. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, it, it is becoming that very quickly. Um, not the least of which is, you know, exploring more deeply the model that Joe and I put forth in the book. But, you know, what we're, what we're finding here is, look, you know, you'll find pundits out there who will say things like, well, this idea of content marketing is cheaper, it's faster, it's more efficient than traditional marketing and advertising. And they're wrong. It's, it's not. It's more expensive, it's harder, and it takes longer. Um, why? Because it's just simply harder and more difficult to create a piece of content of value than it is a catalog or a brochure. It's just, it just is. And so when we start thinking like this, we have to make a business case for this that makes sense. And what that means is, is that we have to start building it as part of a business strategy. It becomes a part of your overall business strategy. And so the content platforms, these media that we create, ultimately become as important as our products and services. You know, one of the things that I often will tell a small business is, look, if you're going to launch a blog, put a product manager on it because they will need to manage it exactly like you would one of your core products and services because it has to deliver that kind of differentiated value in order to serve the business. Thus, a content marketing strategy becomes in its own way a business strategy. Thus, the leadership of the organization have to be behind it because it's not just another little advertising campaign you're putting out that may or may not work. This is something you're going to invest in. It is going to cost real money. It is going to take time and can provide you exponential return on that investment if you treat it as part of your business strategy. So I'm just curious when you and, and, and your uh, tag team partner on, uh, on killing marketing, you and Joe, uh, obviously, you're you're talking to high level leadership all the time. What? How do you answer the question? I've got two questions here, but how do you answer the question to the CEO who nods, but then deep down says, "Yeah, but that's that's the marketing department. The marketing people can take care of that. I've got bigger fish to fry." How do you answer that, uh, Robert? 
Well, the, 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 the cute way to answer that and the way to get thrown out of the building um, is to bring up Peter Drucker and basically, you know, quote Peter Drucker, who said there are only two functions in business that are strategic, which is marketing and innovation. So any CEO who's not interested in marketing and innovation clearly isn't interested in the business strategy. So that's the way you get thrown out, right? Because of course, nobody wants to hear that. And of course, they really are interested in the business. But the key and what I typically do is I'll say, how much did you spend last year on content? And usually if I'm talking to a CFO or a CEO, they'll look at me and go, what do you mean? I mean, content, advertising, emails, web pages, um, social media, all the content that your business is creating as a voice out there in the marketplace, how much did you spend on it? And of course, they, there's no way to answer that. They usually laugh and they said, there's no way to answer that because we don't categorize it that way. And I'm like, right, that's exactly right. I'll hazard a guess, and I've actually seen the numbers, businesses, most businesses produce more content than they do anything else. In other words, you produce more content than your product, you produce more content than your service, you produce more content and spend more on content than almost everything else in the business. Why shouldn't it be one of the most strategic things that you do? If you spend more on it than anything, why wouldn't you have categorized a cost to be able to track that? And of course, they nod and say, you're right, absolutely. And that's what I've now done is I've made an argument for content strategy. In other words, getting good at content and getting our arms around that. Now, the question becomes, what are we doing? Because you know, a content marketing strategy certainly may not be the primary way that you drive your advertising and revenue. And for most companies, it's not. It's a, you know, a, an, an absolute sort of side uh, project over here, or it's a, it's a niche part of the marketing budget or whatever. But what I then say is, if you're looking at content as a long-term investment, because let's look, let's face it, campaigns, TV ads, brochures, catalogs, all of those are the equivalent of day trading. Because what you're doing is you're putting a short-term expense behind something that's not gonna last very long and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. And hopefully it produces some results. So any CEO who comes to me and says, yeah, I wanna do this content marketing, but tell me how it's gonna produce results in a month. I say, it won't, go do a paid campaign. Because you should do that. Traditional marketing advertising, sure. But content marketing, delivering that content that is valuable, provides thought leadership, differentiates you. It is a multiplier of value. And it's a multiplier of value because it demonstrates value to your consumer first. You deliver trust. You deliver the ability to differentiate you as someone worth doing business with. And whether you use that as a means of driving better paid media, you use that as better leads, better, you know, um, better customer service, better customer retention, it is ultimately a multiplier of value. And now, because we've made the argument for content strategy, you should be good at it, you should get your arms around the cost. And because we can see content marketing in some form as a multiplier of value, well, now all we're arguing about is how big a piece of the pie should occupy. It, you know, because that's really it. And everybody should be doing this in part. Maybe it's 75% of your marketing budget. Maybe it's 10% of your marketing budget. Maybe it's 1% of your marketing budget. But if you're not doing some long-term investing in differentiating and demonstrating value to your marketplace, I guarantee you, your competitors are. Robert, I, uh, there's, again, two questions coming your way. 
I want you to take us inside. I think everyone watching or listening would be fascinated to know about the meeting between you and Joe that hatched this revolutionary book. So we're going to get there. But I want to set you up with an episode right out of Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. Okay. Do you remember the scene at the car rental company? Yes. Where, okay. You, you know, I quote it all the time. Yeah. It, it, so, so what I'm hearing you say is that in the 20th century with traditional marketing, you basically rented the audience. Okay. Yes. Now you can own the audience as long as you are the provider of value. It has switched in effect, it seems, from advertising to journalism. It's the opportunity for sure. That is the opportunity. You know, we grew up in, in marketing and advertising, um, you know, leaning into the idea that we, our marketing efforts were all about renting the attention of audiences for but a moment. You know, maybe it was 30 seconds, maybe it was 15 seconds. And all of those things were, you know, bound on us putting our content on some rented channel for one, access to the audience, and two, for whatever, uh, you know, tailwind or drafting, whatever metaphor you like, you got from the brand that you were doing it on. In other words, one of the main reasons that I put a full page ad into the Wall Street Journal is one, I got access to the Wall Street Journal's audience, but two, I got to draft a little bit with the Wall Street Journal brand because it appeared in their magazine. In a world where trust in mainstream media is at an all-time low and their trust in mainstream media versus us is probably at best equal, if not even a little more in us, and in a world where I can actually demonstrate value to the, and reach those audiences on my own, well, the argument to actually go rent those audiences continuously and rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat is pretty hard to make. In fact, it makes a lot more sense to me to build my own media property and actually have people come to it and trust my brand because I'm the one delivering them value. Now, the immediate question is, well, are you delivering the same amount of value that the Wall Street Journal is or the, you know, the competitive media is? And the answer to that is, I can, I, you know, if I invest in it, if I take a long-term view of it, if I actually um, look to it, because here's the secret and the advantage that brands have over media companies, which is we don't have to make money at it. We can, if you buy into the concept of the book that Joe and I wrote, but you don't have to. It just has to break even. In other words, all I have to do is either make it part of my marketing costs or have it not, you know, make as much cost as, as, as I, you know, as I normally would. And I'm, I'm doing a lot better in the long run if, if, I can deliver that value to that audience. And that's the real key is, is that we are now competing. As, as Joe and I like to say, we are all media companies now. It's just where the business model lies at its core that's different. So in that spirit, Robert, take us to the day when you and Joe, you're, you're like, I look at you guys as like fellow musicians <laughs> jamming on the idea. And I know you're a musician and you've played at the Whiskey A Go-Go. So if you're like Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth, you know, going over the song charts for and the lyrics for Fair Warning, what were you guys doing that conceptual that gave birth to this concept? 
Well, you know, I mean, we, we, we're, we're, I mean, look, we're two knuckleheads, right? We just stumbled into this thing. Um, you know, I came at it from the practitioner side. So I was the CMO of a software company and, you know, I came out of the entertainment business, right? As you dutifully noted, I, I did my turn as trying to be a musician here in Los Angeles and that didn't work out as well. And I ended up working in television and, and, and I saw certainly the benefits of monetizing audiences in TV and movies and music and, and, and all of that. And I understood that model. And one of the things that I took with me when I ended up being the CMO of a dot-com software company in the early 2000s was, you know, I wanted to do something different because we were, you know, we were competing with the likes of IBM and Hewlett Packard and giant big brands that we were never going to beat in terms of spend or SEO or any of that. And I said, but if we're a mile deeper, you know, if we, if we're more of the subject matter experts, if and when we get invited to the table to bid against these guys, we're going to be seen as the subject matter experts in this industry. And so I transformed my little marketing department into a media company. And I basically built it out that way, which was to show us as being the experts in this particular space in the industry. And it worked. The company grew. We did very well. I had, you know, in these early 2000s, we had a blog and we had a webinar program and we had events and we were doing all kinds of things like a little media company. And it was also marketing. And I was out on my, the speaking, you know, circuit sort of telling my little story. And I met this guy and had read his book. His name's Joe Polizzi. And he had written a book called Get Content, Get Customers. And it really described what I had done at my little company. Um, and so I sought him out. I actually sought him out at this event where we were both speaking and he and I had dinner and we just, I mean, we immediately became friends. I mean, it was, it was one of those sort of magical, wonderful dinners, you know, there might've been a bottle of wine or two involved, but we, we, we became fast friends. And, and what really matched us up was he had seen this from the media company side, him coming from Penton Publishing and building a whole division that did custom content for brands, custom magazines like airline magazines and those sorts of things, the more historical types of content marketing programs. And me coming in from the practitioner side, having built a team that did that, well, we were basically two sides of the same coin and I could explain it from a marketing theory perspective and he could explain it from a media company perspective. And we just decided that, you know, together we would do something really neat. And so we started, you know, we wrote our first book together. And then when Content Marketing Institute came along, I became the chief strategy officer and he the CEO. And we built that little organization up until its acquisition in 2016. So that was the that one night in Chicago, actually, if, um, at a at a great steakhouse in Chicago, was the was the first night. So you were uh, he was your Mick Ronson to your David Bowie. Is that a fair <laughs> well, metaphor, Robert? He, he would he would probably switch that out, but yeah, that's uh, but, but sure, I'm going to go Mick Ronson and David Bowie. That's a great. That's yeah, Aladdin. It would be the Aladdin Sane sort of uh, uh, era. Yeah. Yeah, and so. As I listen to you, and I, I do, I, I just hang on every word because I think what you're talking about is, is going to be here for a long, long time. If the hypothesis is true that attention equals currency, if it's that simple, that attention equals currency, then as the picture behind me would describe, what is the role of leadership in addressing the very real issue at ground zero? 
of the many people in leadership roles that are uncomfortable with the technology, uncomfortable with the platforms, uncomfortable with camera gear. How do you, as a visionary, Robert, help people come to grips with what they've got to get over in terms of some of their apprehensions? You know, here's what I would say to that, which is you don't have to. Um, you know, and, and, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, so <laughs> what you see on the screen behind you is that's me, right? I mean, I am, I am infinitely uncomfortable in front of the camera. Um, and I am, uh, I am not one, I, you know, I, I would never, um, you know, dub myself visionary or in that way. What, what I'm good at, the thing that I am good at is I'm a map maker. If you say, I need to get here, I'm really good at drawing the lines and building the map to get there. And what comes along with that, I think, and this is for any CEO or any you know, head of a company, no matter how big, what I've found is that it's just better to teach my customers how to be customers rather than persuade them that they should be. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is that it's more fun. It's certainly more interesting. Um, and it's, it's a better relationship to have with customers where by demonstrating my value to those customers in the services that I offer or the products that I sell, what I'm doing is, is that I'm helping them understand and come to the self-conclusion that they should be customers rather than me sort of persuading them. And that is, to me, is, is, is way more interesting as a business strategy um, than trying to constantly hustle and convince someone that they should buy something even though they don't really need it or they don't really want it, but we've got the power of persuasion behind us and, and all of that. And so, you know, in terms of does the, does the CEO have to be out on camera? Do you have to have a podcast? Do you have to have an email? Do you have to? Yes, but you don't have to be that voice. In many cases, you can gather that voice. In other words, you can hire someone that can help you be that voice. You can be the voice behind the scenes. Um, you can certainly create all of the thought leadership and the inspiration, but certainly, you know, put it behind a, a brand, you know, its own brand. Great example of that is that soldering company that I told you about. You know, all of those engineers, they have jobs, right? They have to do things, right? They have, you know, they're, they're actually working for a living. And yes, content is one thing that they do and are expected to do, but they're not out there hobnobbing like little celebrities. They're just, you know, they're, they're doing what it is they do. And what we're doing is surfacing their goodness, their expertise in order to present it in the brand's way to our audience. And so my favorite, you know, my, one of my favorite stories on this was we used to, you know, I, I had a CEO who didn't write, it was a small company, he didn't write, didn't like being on camera, didn't like his voice. And I said, well, let's create a blog for you because it's important for your business. And I said, so you don't like to write, you don't have time for it really. And so what I would do is I would have him on his way home or on a weekend, whenever he felt inspired to leave a long voicemail and we set up this little voicemail line and he would leave a long voicemail, maybe 20 minutes, 
whatever was on his mind, what he was thinking about the industry, something in the news got him all excited. And he would basically leave this long voicemail. We would take that voicemail, we would give it to a writer who would then go all do all the research and put it into his voice. And basically we would present to him content, long form content in the form of a blog post or a white paper and say, this is what we think you said, let's check it. And he would read it and he would make some subtle changes to it. But this CEO had a blog and, but never really got around to writing and never really had to get around to creating his own podcast or getting in front of a camera. We can, we can get that content out in different ways. And that's, and that's really key, I think. I've always said the only limitation here is imagination. That's and, right. And one of the things that I've always admired about you, uh, Robert, in the, in the time that we've known each other, <laughs> is your imagination runs wild on Fridays. Like Friday, well, if, you're, if you become a Facebook friend of Robert Rose, um, you, you got, it's the Friday night concoction. So every <laughs> Friday, you're posting not just a very elegant photograph, but also a very clear description of the ingredients and the appeal. And I don't, I, how do I say this? So I'm the voyeur that sees you come up on the feed and you're making me thirsty, man. <laughs> what I love about this story though, Robert, is how you can take something so simple you care about and anyone can do this. And in effect, you're creating media and a brand for yourself as the Friday night concoction guy. Yeah, I, you know, for, I have, it, when I originally started out doing this, one of the promises that I made to myself was I wasn't going to mix and match my purposes behind uh, social media. And so on Facebook, I post nothing about business. I mean, literally, I mean, sometimes back in the old days when we used to travel for a living, um, you know, I would post where I was traveling to on Facebook, but 99.9% .9 of the things that I post on Facebook are for friends, for colleagues, for people I work with, but having nothing to do with work. Um, you know, it is all about just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a political guy. I'm not, you know, a guy that, um, you know, really wants to complain much. And so, I really enjoy friends and family and their and, and the colleagues and their kids and their food and their travels and their vacations and all of that. And one of the things that I'm passionate about and I love to do is, is uh, make cocktails, make craft cocktails. And the whole thing came about because quite simply, I was looking for healthier alternatives um, for mixers into tequila primarily. And so I started coming up with these fruit, you know, you know, condensed fruit and fruit juice and you know, very all natural, no sugars as, as, as it were. And so I started doing this thing, the, the Friday night concoction, because I do enjoy myself a good cocktail or two or more <laughs> on a Friday night. So, um, so that's, that's what started that. And, and, you know, and, and then it helped me focus because there, you know, on LinkedIn or on Twitter, I can do all my business stuff, right? I can talk about marketing and ROI and the four P's and content marketing and content strategy and all of that. And, you know, and create my own little Friday concoctions in that world. But for this, it was for me, the purpose of this was really to share, you know, sharing happiness was, was, was what I really wanted to do. I, and I think, uh, you know, uh, the compliment and the 
recognition is that you're demonstrating you're a multidimensional person on social media. You're not all, you're not a corporate robot. There's a human side as well as a professional side and which all adds up to when you get right down to it, the word reputation. I just wanted to throw this at you in a day and age when reputations are literally being crushed by one ill-advised tweet or Facebook post, how do you react to the quote from Warren Buffett? It takes 20 years to build a reputation, five minutes to ruin it. Yeah, well, it's, it's I mean, it, we're seeing it every day, right? We're seeing it every day in the, you know, it, from brands, we're seeing it from individuals. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a actor, musician, politician, um, business magnate, you know, it doesn't matter. You're staying true to what it is you want to be um, is, is, is the heart of reputation. And the mistake that people make is when we let exceptions to our rules, uh, you know, enter into our discourse. What I mean by that is probably too fancy a way to say it, but, but what I, what I really mean by yeah, that is- Yeah, give me is, an example. Yeah, so I understand what I do. I understand what I'm, you know, what I'm known for and what I will talk about. And I know what I don't talk about. And I've kept true to that despite the pleasure that it might give me in the moment to not, you know, to, to, to go down that road. And I think what happens is, is that when we see people get into trouble, it's because they don't have the conviction of their beliefs behind them and thus are either ashamed or afraid of being known for what it is they're espousing. Now, there's also just mistakes. There's plain, plain old, you know, stupid, silly mistakes. But the biggest mistake that I see is when you start thinking that you're smarter than the audience and that you need to teach them something that quite frankly, you don't really have any authority or reputation or quite frankly, experience talking about. And, you know, in many ways, it's just, you know, recognizing that in the social media and media space that we are in, we are all media companies. It's not just our company, it's us. We are all media companies. And just like you wouldn't expect, you know, your favorite brand of orange juice to come in and tell you how you're going to fix your car and how, you know, and, and all of the things that you're doing wrong by with car repair and how you're maintaining your car. And you'd be like, who the hell are you to tell me about this? In exactly the same way, who the hell am I? Who the hell am or is this other person to tell me about this politics or this, you know, this, this thing, this, you know, or, or, you know, what they think about X, Y, or Z and, and, and all of those things. And the key is, is that if you want to live that, if you want to, if you want to live and die by the consequences of, of the sword there, you know, that there's, you know, you can create that reputation over 20 years and then ruin it in five minutes. 
but if your reputation is one that you're going to be provocative, you're going to create, you know, controversy and you're going to talk it through and you're willing to live that and die by that and do all those things. And there are definitely people out there who you expect, you know, we certainly have an expectation of a, of a media brand of a recent politician who, quite frankly, you, you get what you pay for, right? You get exactly what you expect from that politician. That's the difference, right? It is, you know, somebody told me once about, uh, you know, our, 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 our real goal these days is to be authentic, right? And, you know, you're trying to be authentic in the world. And what I say to that is you're right, but just remember authenticity just means of undisputed origin. You can be an authentic asshole. And, and you know, so it, it doesn't mean that authentic means that you're a beautiful, wonderful soul that needs to be lifted through the heavens. You can be a jerk and be authentic, but the key is authentic authenticity is what keeps your reputation where it is. Robert, I think on the, in the spirit of authenticity, I think you and I are going to have fun with the up close and personal segment of the podcast. Okay. This is a ticket. I don't know if you can see it or not, but this is a ticket from the very first game opening night for the Dallas Cowboys at new Cowboy stadium against the New York giants. It would have been in September of what was it? 2009, I believe. I'm just looking here. It's a little faded on it the ticket. Been a little earlier than that. 2009. No, it is. Inaugural season 2009. Yeah, there yeah, it is. They, they lost that game, by the they way. They lost that game to Eli Manning and the New York Giants. That's so right. So in the spirit and of- And Eli Manning wrote in the visitor's locker room, he, 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 he's famously scrawled that he, that the score of the game and that he was there. E- Eli was here. Exactly. Yeah. So in that spirit, up close and personal, what books are you reading right now? Oh, you know, here's a funny thing. I, so I am a marketing geek. Um, and, you know, so I'm rereading a book right now. Um, so one of my favorite authors, business authors out there, and your audience will ap- appreciate this, Rita Gunter McGrath. Um, I would highly recommend that you read anything uh, that she has written. Um, and Discovery Driven Growth, which is one of her more famous books, um, is maybe one of my favorite business books of the last decade. The book I'm rereading right now is one called um, The End of Competitive Advantage, which uh, is also uh, a fantastic book. I'll tell you the book that I'm reading right this second. It's funny that you mention it. It happens to be um, right around here somewhere. Um, It's literally on my desk. Uh, it's a book by uh, James Culleton, which will not ring any bells until I tell you that James Culleton is the one, is the Harvard marketing professor who invented the four Ps. And he did so in a book called The Managerial Approach to Marketing. And it's a very thin book, um, but it is the, what introduced the four Ps to the world. And I bought it on eBay. Um, somebody, was, you know, somebody had a first, uh, a first edition and I bought it. And the thing that I'm fascinated with is that the entire first 30 pages of this book um, is him lamenting the fact that there's no way to measure marketing. (laughs) He's basically saying, we have looked, we have asked hundreds of, of CEOs of companies, we cannot find a standard way to measure marketing. 
but this book is going to try and propose a theory anyway. And then he goes on to sort of build his case. It's, it's, I love this book so much and it's from 1948. So it's, that's, that's the book I'm reading right now. And people are still struggling with this on a yeah. scale of one to 10. How weird are you? <laughs> I'm not that weird. Um, some people might disagree with that, but uh, I would say probably uh, uh, in the weirdness scale, probably a five or a six. If there is one room in your house that resonates with you the most, what room is that? Oh boy. It's, you know, probably it's, it's probably my office where I'm sitting now. Um, but not because of the camera and the screens and the keyboard. It's the, what you can't see, which is off screen here, which is my piano and where I can sit and play and, and sort of lose myself in music. This uh, marketing bromance with you and Joe, let's just suppose uh, producers from Netflix or Prime want to turn it into like uh, a series, a biopic. Who's <laughs> going to play the role of Robert Rose? Oh my God. <laughs> oh, what a great question. Um, you know, people say that I have some bearing resemblance to, um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, 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 he's Chandler from Friends. Um, so, uh, probably him, Matthew Perry. Thank you. Matthew Perry. Okay. We're going to do the Lipton Pivo survey. Get ready for it, Robert, because okay. this is rapid fire. Yeah. Inspired by the French journalist Bernard Pivo and the host from inside the actor's studio, James Lipton, Robert Rose. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is grace. What is your least favorite word? Uh, Synergy. What turns you on? Great work. What turns you off? Uh, cynicism. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, the sound of my wife's voice. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, the sound of airplane engines. What is your favorite curse word oh it's gotta be fuck <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt uh teaching what profession under no circumstances would you ever do uh i have to say it would probably be police if heaven exists what would you like to hear our heavenly father say when you enter the pearly gates? Nice work. If you could step into my shoes for just a moment, what would you have asked yourself that I did not? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, you, this, was, this has been a, a joy. If we're looking forward into the crystal ball of what marketing will look like in the 21st century, what is the one question leaders need to be asking right now? Who is our audience? And where, Robert, can the listeners and viewers 
connect with you online because you've been so delightful. And, (laughs) and again, I can't say enough about the work killing marketing, but I do want you to put in, uh, you know, kind of like the coordinates of where people can reach out. Well, you're very sweet for, for, for asking for that. Um, My little cave uh, here in the internet Hills uh, can be found at contentadvisory.net, which is where um, I do my little blogging and where I talk and create content for all the marketers who may be interested in such things that we talked about today. Um, And of course, on the social media, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter um, and and on Facebook, but um, but, uh, I'm mostly business connections on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much. Robert Rose uh, joining us, the chief troublemaker at the Content Marketing Institute, the author of Killing Marketing. And if you want to know more about Tech Canada and its world-class programs, check out the website www.techtec-canada.com. So what was it that Robert spoke of that made you stop and rethink of what the future of marketing looks like. For me, it's the story of the soldering company, how effectively they became or are becoming the Encyclopedia Britannica of their particular space. And it doesn't matter whether it's sewing or sewing machines or soldering or sewing machines, it can apply to uh, every industry, B2B, B2C, nonprofit. So that was kind of one of my big takeaways, but what was yours? Feel free to reach out and share your thoughts. My private email is gair, G-A-I-R, at garemaxwell.com. And if you enjoyed the Leadership Standard, be sure to share it with uh, others in your uh, social and professional online networks. So yeah, like, subscribe, share, you know the drill. And that way we just might inspire someone else to grab hold of the clutch, kick it up a gear, go full throttle in the near front in the in this new frontier. So on behalf of everyone associated uh, back at the Tech Canada office in Calgary, our producers, Alexander, Stephen, Catronel, Mark Johnson, the executive producer, thanks so much for joining us here for the leadership standard.